The COVID-19 pandemic has taken a huge human toll on the world. And even though there seems to be some light at the end of the tunnel, it looks as though the economic impact will outlast the health crisis itself. From the relative comfort and safety of isolation, the warnings of economists on recession and hardship may seem remote. But for those without regular employment or government assistance, the financial pain is hitting right now. This is episode five of the Undercover Podcast. I'm Georgia Bennett-Murphy. Today we'll be exploring the world of odd jobs, so this is in the sense of looking into the ways the gig economy has been impacted as a result of the lockdown, but also how those in literally odd or quite unusual jobs are coping. We'll be speaking to dog walkers, drug dealers and wedding celebrants. Personally, I had just started work as a live saxophonist before the pandemic hit. So what you just heard before there was the start of my saxophone rendition of our podcast's theme song. Uh, I thought it would be a fitting way to introduce the episode, as I know that many of us, particularly those who were working in gig jobs, are really trying to use this time in lockdown to work on our craft. So yeah, that one of the ways I'm doing that is to try and make up saxophone solos to a bunch of random stuff that honestly probably shouldn't have a saxophone in it, but it's certainly keeping me occupied. So sole traders and casual workers could be forgiven for feeling left out when they were initially overlooked in the government's financial support package. And we've got to consider the numbers involved here really are staggering. Some 2.6 million Australians fall into these categories. The JobKeeper scheme was eventually amended to include some sole traders and casual workers. However, not everyone has been able to meet the hurdles for assistance. And many in the gig economy remain in a dire position with no work in sight and facing probably the toughest time in their working lives. Today, our reporters will be speaking to some of the people whose odd jobs have been impacted by the coronavirus. People have, you know, worked, people have paid tax, but the message that comes from the government is that they're not valued. You know, you're still gonna walk my dog, you know, you please, please make sure you keep walking. So 60% increase in sales and people ask me, you know, how we've been trading. It's a bit embarrassing saying that we're trading okay. For 10 people that are in large venues, it can be a very stark reminder of just how alone the families are. The oldest occupation in the world is not going away. There's still always going to be demand for, for human contact. So just that sense of not being able to go, yay, you're married, and give them a hug. It's just so very strange. And now to our reporters. Isolation laws have confined us to our homes, creating an increased risk of alcohol and drug abuse. 
Experts have even warned Australians not to overindulge in these substances during lockdown. Yet liquor retail is one of the few businesses that are seeing a significant rise in sales, whilst those involved in the drug game are still finding ways to sell. Brody Hoyne with the story. Cheers, boys. Ah, the clink. What a sound. It seems to be a bit of an anomaly at the moment, with the current COVID-19 restrictions preventing us from getting on the beers at the pub or having a few social drinks with our friends at home. That doesn't mean you can have all your mates round to home and get on the beers. That's not appropriate. Although pubs and bars are currently closed, liquor stores are still readily available to the public. Some of the major stores, like Dan Murphy's, Liquorland and BWS, have incorporated limits to their products in order to prevent hoarding. For some independent retailers around Victoria, it's business as usual, and business is booming. Sales have been excellent. We saw an immediate spike in the first week of something around um, 50-60%. So if we look back at the analyse the weeks, the weeks in, remarkably increased when, 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 the virus, uh, when the virus first hit. And I was going to say we looked at 60% increase. This is Tony Bongiovanni, a 40-year veteran of liquor retail and owner of Celebrations in Gisborne, Central Victoria. He's seeing firsthand that there has been a massive rise in alcohol purchases since lockdown procedures were introduced in Australia. So 60% increase in sales, and people ask me, you know, how we've been trading. It's a bit embarrassing saying uh, we're trading okay when everyone's sort of <laughs> going down the gurgler. Going down the gurgler, yeah. The diversification of the, the people coming in the store has been phenomenal. I've been doing this for a long time, as you know, and I see Christmas uh, periods when we trade at Christmas. I see all sorts, all walks of life coming and buying liquor. But this was different to Christmas. This was like a Christmas, but there was more more diversification of people buying liquor. Who are they? Probably some people that never drank before and now drinking. Um, people that were working from home who are now drinking at home. People that uh, were a bit stressed about the COVID virus were now drinking. All walks of life. Everyone was drinking more, more and more. We've seen the the, the home study, the homeschooling mums coming in and buying liquor who would normally, normally wouldn't consume liquor during the day, God forbid. So if your drinking habits have spiked during this pandemic, well, not to fear because you're not alone. The evidence is there, with Comsec releasing a national card spending statement which showed a monthly increase of liquor spending from March to April of 26%. This included a week where liquor spending rose by 86%. On top of this, a poll conducted by YouGov Galaxy revealed 20% of Australians have purchased more alcohol than usual during the pandemic, 70% are drinking more and 33% are consuming it daily. Now, usually when we talk about alcohol in this regard, the next topic quite often will be about drugs. So, have you ever wondered how local drug dealers are dealing with the pandemic? Before COVID, it's just mostly, mostly coke and you could make easily, I mean usually, consistently I'd be making four grand. You can get rid of an ounce in about two weekends. 
I spoke with Jack, which for confidentiality reasons is not his real name, who's a drug dealer that mainly deals in cocaine. With people confined to their homes, it has prompted the idea that drug use may be on the rise during the current pandemic. Yeah, just gonna lock myself in and just um, punch some cones for a couple of days. <laughs> All the places that I used to um, get a lot of business from have now like, closed down. The biggest thing probably is where you're selling it. You do, I'm doing a lot more deliveries. There's not a lot of work you have to put in when you're actually at a venue like a pub or a nightclub. A lot of the time people come to you, but that now has changed. It's more of a service where you actually have to bring it to them. You probably have to risk more. My profit margin's probably almost half over the weekend, but it's consistent, so you can rely on the same people. One of the bigger queries I had were the types of drugs people would be taking. Jack sells cocaine and MDMA, drugs that provide an energizing effect. They're stimulants or uppers. But drugs such as ketamine, cannabis, and benzodiazepines or benzos are depressants that lower neurotransmission levels in the brain. People take them to relax or mellow out, somewhat fitting for the current isolation measures. I think a lot of the people that are into coke and MDMA are heavy party. With the downer crowd with like ketamine and other depressants like benzos and all that, it's less of a, less of a party drinking atmosphere, more of a chilling out. The people that I know that sell it, um, largely at the moment, it's, it's one of those house setups where it's just a few people, like not, not as much of an outgoing cocaine uh, and DMA party scene. Of the more surprising things I found with my chat with Jack, it was the type of people he was selling to. So I've found that after the whole COVID thing, um, it's a lot more older people, people in their 30s, 40s. Even people that I know have children, I don't know whether it's they're feeling more of an economic pinch than younger people, but they seem to be more demanding of coke. I know, I know a lot of these people quite well. It's not even that they're, they're going out or anything. They're just staying home and they're, and they're just doing it because they like the drug. Would you say that there's been a growth, a, a significant growth on, in that sector, in that age group, the 30 to 40? Yeah. Young people are less inclined to, I think, do things like cocaine when you're not going to go and do coke by yourself at home, at least for a young person, but I think older people there with their family, especially if they've got kids, their kids have been at home, like not at school during the COVID, and their kids, they probably put their kids to bed or something, they finally get that time off and they can um, get stuck into a bag. If people are buying more liquor, there's obviously going to be buying more drugs. That was Brody Hoyne with that story, delving into the world of drug and alcohol sales during the coronavirus lockdown. Next up, keeping ourselves happy and well during the coronavirus is a tough gig, but it's hard on our pets too. Services such as dog walkers are filling in a real need for time-poor health service workers. Michaela Van Loon looks into how dog walking is helping the people who help us. Good girl. Come on. Hang on, sister. Picture this, you just got home from work, you take your dog for a walk, you eat dinner and then you curl up on the couch with your furry companion. Well, they were the days before coronavirus made an appearance. For many of us, working from home means we might be able to walk our dogs throughout the day. A luxury, you could say. 
but for some, dog walking services are still essential to ensure their beloved pet is happy, exercised and tired when they get home from a long day. My name's Rachel Black, I'm 44 and I have a dog walking business uh, called Windsor Walkie. So we look after dogs overnight, daycare, beach playdates and dog training. Rachel started her own business nine years ago and she loves what she does. But of course, at a time like this, it would be hard to make the decision to stay open and being able to ensure the safety of her staff and clients is paramount. Although not a government-approved essential service, Rachel is still operating her business because people depend on her. So that we have quite a, a larger number of clients who are um, or doctors, nurses and police. So their hours have changed and they're working on more of a two-week on, two-week off and the potential that they will be infected is quite high. A lot of them are working 12, 13-hour days and when they get home at night or first thing in the morning, they just want to go to sleep and they want a dog that's been exercised. It's just one less thing they have to worry about. The dog's been exercised, fed and the dog just wants to jump into bed with them. My dog's just turned four. This is Ken Sakata. He's a little bulkage dog. He is a doctor and surgical assistant at various hospitals around Melbourne. His dog, Denzel, is one of Rachel's clients. I think we've been using Rachel for almost three years. Because elective surgeries were cancelled, Ken went to work for the Department of Health's COVID-19 quarantine program for a two-week period. It was just relentless. It was every day, morning to night, and you were working as much as you could. So we were working through the weekend, uh, through public holidays, all of that. Um, You missed on literally everything. You wake up, you go to work, and you come back. For those two weeks, Ken said it was really nice knowing that Denzel was being walked and socialised every day of the week while he was working such long hours. It was such a big help and just really took a lot of stress out of my day in a way. I feel so guilty when I'm away all day, especially when there's no sort of um, fixed time to come back. And the whole day at work I'll be worrying about, okay, you know, did I put enough water out for him? Or, you know, did I walk in the nuck in the morning or will I walk in the nuck at night? You know, it's something that you sort of think about and ruminate about. It sounds really silly to say, but um, that, yeah, it really did remove that stress from my mind. Even though some of her work has declined because families are at home to walk and exercise their own pets, most of her clients are still so appreciative that Rachel is still walking dogs. A lot of owners have said to me, you know, you're still going to walk my dog, you know. You used to please, please make sure you keep walking. But but we love it. They love their dogs getting out. And if they are working from home, their workloads tend to, at the moment, have been bigger than ever. So they are sitting at that desk and it makes them feel happy that their dogs are still getting out with their friends. They can look at Instagram, they can check the feed and see exactly who their dogs went out with. We always just leave them a little note so where we've been, who the dog's been at with, what they got up to, which just makes them feel happy as well. So they're, you know, it's, for a lot of people, it's, they're, trying to, they're trying to keep their life as normal as possible as well. Over the course of the coronavirus lockdown, major spikes in Google Trends relating to pet fostering and adoption has occurred. Google Trends noted a 64-point increase from the beginning of May last year 
to the beginning of April this year, meaning pet adoption reached its highest ever recorded search history over the last month. Not only has Google been overwhelmed, but places like Save a Dog in Melbourne's southeastern suburbs have been inundated with emails about adopting pets and have had over 200 requests to foster an animal. Rachel says it's vital at a time like this to have a pet and it is the perfect time to get a puppy or foster a dog. A lot of people, yes, they are on their own. They just don't have any any connection, any touch. Um, it's absolutely crucial. Um, you know, that's why there's pet therapy um, and dogs all through history have been known to heal and provide exceptional benefits to humans. And while our pets might seem to have it easy at the moment, being home all day with cuddles whenever they want, Rachel warns we have to be careful when life goes back to how it was. It's really, really important for them to, to as I said before, to keep as much normality as possible. Um, and if you've got, especially if you've got a younger dog, to get it out and socialise it because some of the problems that, that can occur with you being at home with your dog all day, you know, down the track you could have some separation anxiety issues when you do go back to work. So take care of yourself, but don't forget about your furry friend. They too need exercise, a good diet, and most importantly, love. Michaela Van Loon reporting there. The COVID-19 pandemic has made many conventional jobs unexpectedly difficult. But what about those in jobs that have always been forced to look death in the eye every day? Well, for Melbourne funeral celebrant Jackie Chaplin, many things have changed, but she's still taking the opportunity to bring comfort to families in their times of mourning. Sam Watson spoke to Jackie on how things have changed for the funeral industry. When Jackie Chaplin decided to become a funeral celebrant after five deaths close together in her family, she knew she'd be able to help comfort others in their saddest times. But I'm sure she never expected to ever have to adhere to social and physical distancing laws in her ceremonies. Now funerals have more cameras, less seats, a memorial table and a candle lighting that everyone at home can take part in. Jackie is certainly well equipped for her role in funerals but she admits they feel very different to what they did just two months ago. So when it comes to actually delivering the service, the services these days um, with the coronavirus restrictions are very different. So uh, on Friday, just of this week, um, I did a service for a family that uh, I had done a service for their family for um, the partner of the woman who died this week, uh, three years ago, and that funeral was held in a public cemetery chapel it had a hundred people we had lots of different people speaking on the day so coming up to the lectern and going away these days so yesterday's funeral uh, you know in the times of coronavirus only had 10 mourners and then there were the two funeral directors myself and the people who were responsible for the audio and the live streaming before coronavirus, Jackie had been a part of live-streamed funerals only 10 to 15 times. 
This was mainly for family members who were overseas or for funerals where everyone that wanted to attend couldn't fit into one space. But obviously now they're all live streamed. Um, it, it's an odd, addressing the camera in a service is an odd thing to do, um, but it is also really important, I think, to address the camera at times in the same way as when the, when there are only 10 people in the room, it's at different times during the service, I would look at every person in the room and get their eye contact and make sure they know that they're being included in the service. So I do that with the camera as well. And particularly if I'm talking about uh, someone in the family who I know is watching on their computer. Do you think that it's easier or harder to talk to the immediate members of a grieving family when there's only 10 of them like as it is now do you think it's do you think it's harder to talk to them when they're not surrounded by all their friends and extended family it's a it's a really interesting thing to notice how families respond differently so for smaller families i find that when when i'm talking to them and when they're in the space it's actually a really intimate service and they don't have uh, lots of people around them expressing their condolences and their sympathies which can sometimes when there's a lot of people around feel like platitudes so for some families who are very private and they're being able to have their funerals without perhaps the social pressure of having really large funerals because that's the expected norm uh, up until this time so that's one uh, silver lining if you like uh, w with the restrictions and yet if you look at uh, you know for the four police officers who died in Victoria this week uh, there would have been a huge public out outpouring and attendance at their funerals at the police academy uh, were that to be allowed but to have um, 10 people in a huge chapel space like at the public cemetery chapels or at the police academy chapel uh, is a very different setup so when i've delivered services for 10 people that are in large venues it can be a very stark reminder of just how alone the families are and that you see them looking around the space and mm. and noticing the lack of support that they might have otherwise had for those wondering how Jackie would go about a funeral where someone has passed away from coronavirus, she made the answer pretty clear. I absolutely mentioned that we're in a pandemic at the moment in yep. every service. I acknowledge that when there are only 10 people in the room, we know why this is. We yep. know the challenges. You know, the language that we hear is all about the unprecedented times we live in, irrespective of whether someone's uh, died from COVID-19 or not. It is about recognising the times that we're in, as I did when we were experiencing the bushfires. Jackie does not consider being a funeral celebrant a mentally straining job. Through her various careers, she's used to being in people's emotional spaces and while managing her own emotional space. This allows her to comfort the families in the best way possible. She actually considers it mentally stimulating to help grieving families. However, what she has been struggling with in the COVID-19 crisis is the absence of physical contact with the mourning family members. Such a strong bond can be created between a celebrant and families 
and to not be able to physically express that bond uh, is very difficult, both for family members and their friends, as well as between the celebrant and the family. While funerals continue to go ahead, weddings are on a sad decline, meaning people like Alison Saunders, a wedding celebrant in Melbourne, are losing a lot of work. Sam also spoke to her about the impact the coronavirus is having on the wedding industry. Everyone dreams of their wedding day as one of the most special days of their life, surrounded by their closest family and friends. Now that day seems further away than ever for couples waiting to tie the knot. Wedding celebrant Alison Saunders says she's experiencing some big changes to her job. Well, I mean, the biggest is fundamentally that 90% of my weddings have elected to not get married. So that is a phenomenally big impact, obviously, as, as a small business owner, is that whilst eventually that income will come my way, it's, it's, there's a six-month void um, from basically I got through most of my March weddings um, where before the, the real restrictions kicked in and then I've only had one, one ceremony in uh, April. I'm, I'm going to have one ceremony in May and I may have a ceremony in June, but it, it, it's not going to look and feel the same. So the majority of people have gone, what is the biggest driver here for us? Is it about just getting married or is it about getting married with everyone we love around us. And so the, the majority of people have elected to defer and postpone their wedding. As for the one wedding that Alison worked in April, it was certainly one of the stranger experiences she's had in her job. A camera was set up to live stream the wedding to any family and friends wanting to watch. And structuring the way we set up, a, that they had their two witnesses, a best friend each, and we were in a lovely little... Um, rotunda in St Kilda Gardens there in the Katani Gardens and having to sort of even for them to have to keep their physical distance from their very dear friends and again not being able to share that that expression of, of joy at the end of it all um, one and a half meters between each of us and um, I spraying our hands before we picked up a pen to sign some paperwork it was I, I guess the beautiful thing was for the couple, it didn't matter. They were just so excited to be married to each other that I'm really glad it didn't affect their sense of joy. Um, but they've definitely said they're going to have another celebration later and invite a whole bunch of people and invite me along to sort of recreate the event so that we kick up the heels and have a party. So, yeah, it, there was definitely a sense of something was missing. Part of Alison's role was to address the camera an awkward part of proceedings at what is normally a closed ceremony. She also made clear exactly why the camera was there in the first place. Yes, so we definitely addressed the, the enormous elephant, um, the COVID coloured elephant in the room. Yep. Um, because it was, it was impossible not to notice the difference. In terms of the camera, I'll be honest, it was hard for me because it is in the absence of human beings to look at, I, I did find myself being drawn to the eyes of the of the four people that were there, the, the couple and their, their two witnesses. Um, and I think it's a case of practice. I'd like to think that as we get, if we have to keep going down this path, that you know, I'll get better at that. <laughs> Although the camera was a tricky obstacle for Alison, there is one thing she struggles with most. But the strangest thing about it, I think, was just this sense of 
not being able to express your joy in a physical way and it, it's such a fundamental thing that I don't even think about and I, and I do I know people who are not um, inclined like who, who don't feel comfortable with physical uh, expressions of affection but for me a hug <laughs> is a really fundamental thing when you're happy for someone I hug them and so just that sense of not being able to go yay you're married and give them a hug was <laughs> just so very strange for couples still pondering the thought of their wedding going ahead in lockdown, Alison reckons they should think about whether it's the right thing to do for them. Ultimately, in the same way that their day is their day and I'll do everything I can to give them ideas and thoughts and, and help them and guide them to create something, it's not for me ultimately to decide. So yep. really it's more about checking in with them and giving them the space and permission to sort of say what is it that's really important to you at this point in time. Alison admits that it could have been a lot worse for wedding celebrants. She still had a lot of weddings cancelled in April but luckily the winter months are obviously her quieter times of the year. Alison isn't sure whether she'll be busy when restrictions are softened because people will still be cautious about having lots of guests in small venues. Like many of us, Alison is sometimes finding it difficult to cope with the lockdown restrictions. And it always feels like I'm being a bit churlish or um, ungrateful when I say I'm struggling. Um, but I am absolutely an extrovert. And the nature of my job, I suppose, is quite telling in that respect that I, I really enjoy the company of other people. Um, it gives me energy, it, it lifts my spirits and so it, it is hard. I'm, I'm a single woman, so the financial pressures of, of managing my mortgage and, and all of everything else that managing my business costs and keeping everything open and afloat and keeping my head up and it does sometimes get you a little bit down but I'm, I'm really okay in the scheme of it all. I know I'm okay and I will be longer term so yeah. That was Sam Watson reporting on how both the funeral and wedding industries have been impacted by the coronavirus. Our next story looks into one of the groups who've been hit hardest by the pandemic lockdown, most of whom have received little support and have no safety net. Nick Obst reports. COVID-19 has dominated the news cycle for months now. It's everywhere. But amongst the noise, refugees and asylum seekers are falling through the cracks. People were already vulnerable before the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, people faced homelessness. Uh, entire families face homelessness. Marcella Brassett is the campaign manager with the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. She's trying to draw attention to the problems COVID-19 has created for refugees and asylum seekers. A large number, number of people were dependent on charity to survive and meet basic needs. People had bridging visas that expired and therefore, you know, it was quite difficult to find permanent work. So a lot of people were in casual work, a lot of people were in cash work and, you know, mainly in 
industries like the gig economy or agricultural industry or service industry, cleaning, you know, Uber driving, uh, security. Now, like so many others, they've lost work during the crisis. It's made them far more vulnerable. So people are becoming homeless and people aren't able to pay their rents, you know, aren't able to negotiate with landlords or accruing rental debts and just, yeah, just have become increasingly destitute and precarious. Life has become incredibly precarious for them. So the reason why they, you know, they are at risk is because they don't have a safety net. We had to draw the line somewhere. This is a massive call on the public purse and it is a debt that the country will pay for years. The government's JobKeeper and JobSeeker schemes don't extend to any of the 1.1 million temporary visa holders in Australia. They can't access Medicare and they face lengthy processes just to keep their visa status. With no safety net, the impacts of this crisis are going to last for a very long time. The vulnerability of people has intensified and when people are vulnerable, we know that it's harder for them to find work. It's harder for people to look for work when they can't pay their rent or their face homelessness. It's harder for people to train and get themselves into jobs if they're experiencing mental health challenges, which comes from the stress of not knowing where your rent's going to come from or how you're going to feed yourself and your families. Without government assistance, refugees and asylum seekers need jobs. But as for getting back into the job market? Everybody's looking for a job and employers tend to favour people who have permanent residence because, you know, they know that they're going to have work rights or be able to work for a consistent period of time. Well, again, if there's no work for them uh, and then they can get back to their home country, then that is obviously an option for them. You see, at $130 billion... But Marcella says a key problem is how unwelcome the lack of support makes refugees and asylum seekers feel. People want to contribute. People have, you know, worked. People have paid tax. People have contributed to the community. But the message that comes from the government is that they're not valued and that they, you know, they're not valued enough to be supported when they do need help when everyone else in Australia is being supported. So that really, that message that comes from the government consistently is no matter what you do or no matter how hard you work, you will never get a fair go in Australia because you're just not, you're, you're a refugee or you're a person seeking asylum and there's, you know, you're not welcome and you don't deserve to live in Australia. You don't deserve to have what other Australians have. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre has been providing food, healthcare, legal advice, education and other support to refugees and asylum seekers since 2001. During this crisis, up to 100 new people have been requesting their help each week. Meanwhile, they're still campaigning for refugees and asylum seekers to receive government assistance. The news cycle is really focused on the pandemic. COVID-19, it's a crowded space where people are struggling in lockdown. There's the issue of protecting older Australians, young Australians. There is so much going on. The greatest difficulty, I think, is to try to find the space and the voice for people seeking asylum in that crowded space. But there's still some hope for those looking for work. 
there was a story of a man who got released from detention and went back to his old job working at the hospital in Dandenong and is, you know, on the front line looking after people in hospital. There are people who do have health work skills. I know of a young woman who works in the public transport industry who's now getting her hours back, which is, which is great. She didn't have any work for a while, was really, really stressed. I mean, there are a range of jobs like people at the ASRC. We have a social enterprise and we employ people in the catering service and we've re redeployed people to make meals. We've made more than 900 meals in the last few weeks to be delivered to people seeking asylum. So, you know, people are being redeployed a little bit to support their own communities if we can um, or where we can. That was Nick Obst with that story. Casual work has always been more volatile and less stable than traditional jobs, with reduced work rights and the potential to lose shifts at short notice. And while those working in the hospitality or retail industries tend to immediately come to mind as falling into this category, so do casual nannies and babysitters. Isabel Harris looks into how the childcare industry has been affected by the coronavirus. Matt Johnson is a primary school student from Campbell in Melbourne's inner eastern suburbs that has been looked after by a succession of nannies and babysitters since he was very young. Okay, so do you think coronavirus has changed how nannies' jobs work? Yeah, because now all the social distancing and, oh no, I don't want to get corona, um, people aren't hiring them. At one point in time or another, the majority of families will employ a babysitter or nanny to watch their kids. It's a pretty common job for younger people, especially younger women. Various former and current babysitters I've spoken to most begin in their mid-teens and continue until their early 20s, often using it as a method to supplement incomes from other jobs. Others try to use it as a kind of main job, relying solely on it for primary income. Unfortunately, official statistics for the actual numbers of casual nannies and their background or earnings are not normally recorded. Noelle Johnson, Matt's mum, is a finance and corporate professional and has needed to employ nannies for her three children for a number of years due to her high pressure work commitments. Well, just because I work three full days a week, uh, I can't pick up my child from school, so it's just really helpful to have a nanny to pick him up. Nannying attracts so many young people purely because it is so flexible and relatively easy to get regular work. Pay is from $15 to $25 an hour, with an average of $26 an hour according to Jobsite Indeed. But this can change depending on a range of factors including experience and professional training. A large portion of nannies rely on word of mouth through school and friend networks for occasional work. Websites such as the Nanny Gumtree equivalent Find a Babysitter are becoming increasingly popular and necessary to find ongoing and regular work. What were your thoughts about continuing to employ a nanny during this pandemic? It made me really quite apprehensive because, you know, I knew that you were bringing a potential risk into the home and because I sort of worked part-time I was able to do most of the school supervision and after-school care myself. Nannying jobs, like many casual jobs, are evaporating under the coronavirus pandemic. Some parents are working from home themselves and no longer require the assistance these nannies provide. Others are unable to afford a nanny as their own jobs are under threat, whether the parents are casual employees or not. There's also the fear that outweighing the benefit of having an extra person in your home, potentially bringing in the virus from an unknown and untraced contact. I didn't really expect that it would get to a state of emergency pandemic situation. Although she wanted to continue to employ a nanny to supervise schoolwork and manage her child while she worked from home, Narelle dismissed her nanny two weeks after coronavirus cases appeared in Melbourne 
as her partner and nearby mother have health issues. Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton has recently clarified that parents are allowed to have friends or family watch their children at home or drop them off with others, so nannying and babysitting is still technically legal. What do you think if they have bills to pay? Well, it's probably a really hard life for them. So I first started working as a babysitter when I was around the age of 16, watching neighbourhood kids while I couldn't hold a normal job because of high school. I kept this up until I gave retail a go before going back to nannying in my second year of university after I quit my retail job. I've had a number of clients and families over the years from all different backgrounds, from corporate professionals to stay-at-home mums going out for a girls' night out. Some I've known for over four years and I continue to work for them when I can, even after I've moved on to new jobs. However, I lost my re most recent job to coronavirus. I don't resent the family or blame them for their decisions, it just leaves me in a bit of a sticky situation. You see, because I'm paid cash in hand like the majority of other nannies, I'm not technically employed and I don't qualify for the new JobKeeper payment. I also don't qualify for other Centrelink payments or assistance, so I'm a bit stuck you might say in that regard. I'm really fortunate that I managed to get a job in a cafe a few days a week, but some people are stuck in a really awkward position. They don't get work, but they don't always qualify for Centrelink payments, so they're forced to rely on their savings if they're lucky enough to have any. In the future, it's really hard to tell where a nanny's job might go or where it will end up. As an experienced nanny, I would say that while some will decide having another person in their homes is an unacceptable risk, the majority will require us and our jobs again. For now, it's about surviving with what we can and hustling, as we might say, to make ends meet, just like everyone else. Isabel Harris reporting there. And in our final story, workers around the country have spent the last few weeks adapting their homes into improvised offices, planning Zoom sessions and reorganising their lives so that they can work from home. Some businesses have closed until the restrictions end, some have adapted in order to stay afloat, and some have shut down entirely. But there's one group for whom this instability is standard – and who are well acquainted with working from home, even if it's not always their own. Kai Holroyd reports. Uh, so I'm a sex worker myself, um, and I also do some, I do other advocacy and education work around sex worker rights. So you were introducing me, you would just say, um, representative of Scarlet Alliance. That was Gala Vanting. She's a writer, advocate, speaker, and dominatrix. She spends a lot of her time representing workers around the country and working with Scarlet Alliance, a national peer group of sex workers. The industry has been rocked by the new self-isolation policies and has fallen through the cracks of policy makers. As a result, many workers are finding themselves without income and without any form of support. We're, we're already stigmatised, we're already criminalised in many places. In-person sex work is already dangerous with counterintuitive laws often prohibiting workers from telling others where they are who they're with or working with other people. In response to this, many sex workers prioritising safety end up working illegally. It, it varies from state to state. Um, but the, I, I think the best way that I can summarise it is that um, working safely is illegal in many states and territories. With the coronavirus outbreak, people already often working in a legal grey area have been forced to take extra measures in terms of safety. Many workers are now taking shorter bookings, offering different services and increasing infection control. There is always going to be a level of risk. Like, when you're intimate with another person, there is always a level of risk. 
and it's up to you as an adult to be aware of that and to minimize that measures like you know using one hand to touch the client one hand to touch yourself and never like cross-contaminate that way that was dahlia an escort from wa sex work isn't illegal in wa however brothel work or working in pairs is Many workers have taken to campsites like OnlyFans, Chatterbait, or Cam4 in this period, where they can offer live shows and performances to an audience in exchange for subscription payments or one-off donations. Hey guys, it's Amanda. Welcome back to my channel. In today's video, I'm going to be talking about my experience as a cam girl, as well as answer some of y'all's Scarlet Alliance has particularly recommended moving services online. Um, online work to, is, is what we are recommending for people who are unable to, um, to continue to work uh, in, in, in face-to-face sessions. Any restructure on this kind of scale will have consequences, and Dahlia is interested to see what will happen afterwards. But the really interesting thing that I've found is that with this surge of women controlling their own image online is the follow-through effect that that's going to have on the rest of society. This transition to online work moves the industry to an interesting legal area, allowing workers to perform in a far safer way without skirting legal parameters. So creating digital content is not, um, is not governed by the sex work law in any states and territories because that's, that, that becomes um, publications law, so classifications, um, adult content, that kind of thing. While physically safer and generally more legal, this form of performance tends to be far less lucrative and it puts workers in a precarious financial position. And of course, not everyone is in a position to change so rapidly. I have a kid, so I'm not able to get online, like in terms of cam work, um, I can't get online when buyers are online, so that option's out for me. The average cam model makes less than $2,000 a month for full-time work, so many have seen a sharp drop in their income or remaining ineligible for government support. For comparison, even after cutting her hours down, Dahlia makes somewhere between $1,000 and $1,500 a week. Before that, she could make up to three or four grand a week in a good period. I asked her how she planned to make up the deficit, or if there were other ways she could cut down. The answer was probably what you'd expect. Yeah, I mean, I've applied for JobKeeper, and that would be ideal. Like, I would prefer not to work, but, you know, I also would like to eat. <laughs> um, I still have rent to pay, I still have to, I mean, I don't have to pay for childcare anymore, which is an absolute blessing, um, but, you know, expenses are still there, and it's people who are in the margins who, you know, still have to work. Even in New South Wales, which is currently the only state to have completely decriminalised sex work, individual workers are finding themselves targeted. Uh, so the targeting of individual sex workers um, happens by, you know, police looking at their ads or um, finding them. So if they work in a, uh, so what the first um, the first fine that was issued after the industry shutdowns in New South Wales was issued to a Tyler in the Sydney CBD, and that fine uh, was that, so there were three individual sex workers who were fined, um, as was the owner of the parlour. Um, and so I guess this is what I mean by, by the targeting. Scarlet Alliance has been petitioning the government for relief funding and increased funding for themselves in order to distribute that money effectively. To date, those requests have gone ignored, so Scarlet Alliance has been relying on private donations. Uh, we have been 
hosting a fundraiser for sex workers, the the demand for that for that funding well exceeds um, the, the capacity. While the wider industry struggles against increased marginalisation and a lack of governmental support, individuals are making the most of social isolation and an increased demand for connection. Demand has gone up, and I'm not sure if that's because there are less workers who are working. Um, yeah, or if it's the, you know, the actual act of isolation itself is driving demand because people are craving, you know, some kind of connection or, like, intimacy or, you know, isolation isn't a... It's not a good way of being, like, when humans aren't meant for that. It's impossible to say where the industry is going to go from here, but as long as people continue looking for intimacy, connection and human contact, well, Dahlia puts it best. People who can diversify will diversify. And, like, it, like I said, everything's changing all the time. But who, who knows? Who knows? And that brings us to the end of today's episode of the Undercover Podcast. We'd really love to hear your story or even just a quick thought on what we're all going through right now. You can leave us a message on 039018-5005. If you're comfortable, please give us a call and leave your name and number so we can get back in touch with you. Or head over to our Twitter at cover underscore podcast to DM us a video of what your isolation might look like. Until next time, though, please stay safe and we look forward to having you back for next week's episode. Episode 5 of RMIT's Undercover Podcast was brought to you by reporters Sam Watson, Brodie Hoyne, Isabel Harris, Michaela Van Loon, Nick Obst and Kai Holroyd. Presented by George Bennett Murphy and produced by Josh Martin and Caitlin Kalafatis.